1: Hello, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to
0: AOA Today. We've got a lot coming on today's conversation. We're going to talk with Brian Jennings in just a moment, the CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. And in segment two, we're going to check in with Lori Starmer. She's the president-elect of the National Pork Producers Council Executive Board, and she's been watching hard for international policies that could impact that market. She'll share with us here in segment two. And in segment three, we're going to talk with John Hulsman, author and geopolitical strategist, about what he's watching for risk spots in the world as we look ahead to this summer. And finally, folks, we're going to close today's conversation with a look at these markets. They continue to rally as we head into this coming three-day weekend. Old crop corn up 11 to 19 cents. New crop December currently up 18 and a quarter. Soybeans also on a tear today. Old crop up 25 cents. New crop up almost 40 cents on the day trading right now November soybeans at thirteen we'll be talking to Mike Zuzalo about what he's watching in these markets as we head into this weekend before we do all of that however let's get the lowdown from Brian Jennings CEO of the American Coalition for ethanol Brian you are hot off the trail at the International Fuel Ethanol Workshop in Omaha earlier this week what was under discussion by the crew there
2: Yeah, that's right, Mike. It's a pleasure to join you again. You know, the the real hot topic of discussion at the Fuel Ethanol Workshop this year was how ethanol producers are trying to consider investments to reduce their carbon intensity and take advantage of a new tax credit that doesn't kick in until 2025, but a very important tax credit called the Clean Fuel Production Tax Credit or 45 z as we refer to it in the tax code and the reason is that provides a base credit of like 20 cents a gallon for uh, any carbon intensity low carbon intensity fuels compared to gasoline if you're 50 percent better and if you can get even better than that even lower carbon than that you can obtain a credit up to a dollar a gallon and so producers are looking at various technology options to uh, set themselves up to to obtain the largest credit they can. That was a real hot topic of conversation.
0: Brian, that is a fantastically complicated topic. When we're getting in here, determining (laughs) the carbon intensity of different fuels relative to gasoline. And that's what I'd like to talk a little bit, the conversation focuses on modeling so much. And I'm curious, why don't we just burn the ethanol, burn the gasoline, measure the carbon and see which one's different?
2: Yeah, fantastically complicated is a uh, great way to describe the the scientific modeling that goes along with this. Um, Mike, you're exactly right. In some ways, what you described is what the modeling does. It measures all of the emissions that go into the manufacturing or the production of a source of energy, um, as well as the emissions that come from that source of energy when it's, when it's utilized in a, you know, to propel, in the case of transportation fuel, to propel a vehicle. And so um, with, with corn ethanol or other crop-based biofuels, of course, it's, it's all of the inputs on uh, the corn or soybean production side of things. And they really count the, the angels on the, on the head of a pin with respect to that. But there's a lifecycle model out there called the GREET model developed by the Department of Energy that really does an incredible job of, of, of handling that, Mike. And it's updated on an almost annual basis, which means as we've gotten better in production agriculture, um, we've gotten more efficient. Um, We're using less inputs. A lot of that is taken into consideration. And so that's that's the model that we've really advocated for is the GREET model by the Department of Energy.
0: Now, Brian, I understand there has been a recent bill introduced in the Senate that would enshrine that GREET model as the, as I understand it, only way to measure carbon intensity for biofuels. Is that accurate?
2: Accurate to a degree. There's a bill by Senator Duckworth that would require that for sustainable aviation fuel, which is a very nascent industry. We don't produce much sustainable aviation fuel today because it's very expensive to make. But there's a separate tax credit for it in the Inflation Reduction Act. And the bill currently or the law currently requires a different outdated model to determine carbon intensity that would really box out biofuels from having an opportunity to to be used to make sustainable aviation fuel. So this bill by Senator Duckworth would amend the Inflation Reduction Act to require the GREET model to be used and that's really important. So we've we've endorsed that.
0: Okay, so we do have some congressional action happening there Brian, as you mentioned SAF, it's going to be fascinating to watch that industry develop here over the coming years. but in the meantime we've got a great supply of biofuels already here in the market. The challenge is getting it to consumers. what are you watching at the federal level that can help improve biofuel access?
2: Well we've got a couple things that are that are happening. One, President Biden approved D15, emergency use for the summer of, of 2023. That was important because we still haven't uh, sort of overcome that hurdle with respect to the re vapor pressure issue, and this emergency waiver is going to help for this summer. We've got some activity going in other states that I think will set us up well for 2024. You know, the other thing that is coming down the pike next week, Mike, Wednesday, the EPA will release the blending volumes for renewable fuels um for calendar years 2023 through 2025 this is a big new phase of what we call the renewable fuel standard which is a law that EPA has administered for several years to ensure that increasing volumes of renewable fuels are used in in transportation and so that's going to be something we're carefully looking for next week.
0: Now, Brian, you mentioned that's coming next Wednesday, but it's kind of like a, a Lucy with the football situation. It was expected last Wednesday. Are your indications are that, that we will get that uh, RVO set in this next week?
2: Yeah, the one week delay did concern me, but we've had some calls with EPA and uh, kind of off the record. They've they've assured us there's no hanky panky that um, they're coming out with the final rule next Wednesday, the 21st. I think we're generally going to be happy with strong volumes for corn-based ethanol. I'm not so sure the soybean uh, biodiesel folks are going to be entirely pleased with the volumes for advanced biofuel, so there may be some work to do on that front. But generally speaking, for conventional biofuel, also known as corn ethanol in the renewable fuel standard, I think we're going to be in pretty darn good shape next week.
0: All right, Brian, before we let you go, the Next Generation Fuels Act, can you give us an update? Is that going to be under consideration in this Congress?
2: I sure hope so. What we need to do is get a hearing for that bill. There's bipartisan, bicameral support for the Next Generation Fuels Act for your listeners. It would really overcome all of the hurdles out there getting from E15 to a higher blend, a high-octane blend, like an E25 or an E30 it would restore incentives for flexible fuel vehicles. So it's a critically important bill, longer term. What we need to do are two things. One, generate more co-sponsors. So contact your members of Congress, contact your senators, ask them to co-sponsor it, and two, get a hearing on that bill this year
0: hearing and co-sponsors. Folks, if you care about biofuels, get in touch with your legislators on the Next Generation Fuels Act. We've been talking with Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. And Brian, thanks for joining us on AOA Today. Thanks, Greg. Folks, stay with us. We'll be talking with Lori Sturmer here, President-elect, the National Pork Producers Council, when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. On the first Wednesday of every month, our friends from the National Corn Growers Association join us here on AOA for a segment we call The Monthly Grind. This month, we talked with Wendy Osborne of Ohio Corn and Ralph Lentz of the U.S. Meat Export Federation Board. Wendy, this partnership between grains and livestock is an important one, isn't it?
3: Yeah, so corn growers recognize that of the world's population lives outside the U.S. So trade is just so important to the U.S. farmer. And American corn farmers want to help increase demand for U.S. beef and pork around the world. That in 2021, beef and pork exports, this is just the exports, Mike, they accounted for 537 million bushels of corn usage, which equates to about $2.94 billion.
4: Ralph, that's a huge figure.
0: What areas around the world look hot for meat exports in 2023?
4: Anything in Asia, Korea, Japan, China, they love our corn-fed beef. That's not duplicated anywhere in the world.
0: Pork products are moving well.
4: They've got a taste of our red meat and they don't like fish anymore. They're moving more than red meats.
0: Tune in Wednesday, July 5th for the next monthly grind on AOA.
5: In today's troubled world, our USA Armed Forces stand ready to protect you, your family, and our American way of life. When veterans return to civilian life, they deserve your recognition and support. You can help put vets to work by donating your car, truck, or van to Patriotic Hearts. Your donation will directly support programs to help vets find jobs or even start their own business. Donate today for fast free pickup of your vehicle, running or not. Operators are standing by to answer questions about making a tax-deductible vehicle donation. Find out how you can make a difference in the life of a United States veteran. Call 800 209 6416 For 24-hour response, call 800 800- two zero nine six four one six eight hundred two zero nine six four one six that's eight hundred two zero nine six four one six nothing offers an opportunity to bond
6: and give thanks quite like breaking bread together this is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts hi i'm gary sinise Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes Purple Packaging at your grocery store and visit rfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve, together we can make a difference bite by bite. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening
0: to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.
1: Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson.
0: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today, and we're going to take a look at the pork industry next. Last week, of course, we were in Des Moines at the World Pork Expo at heard from so many pork producers about the dismal economic outlook that has developed quite recently in that industry. And over the past two or three weeks, we've seen $20 rally happen in the August lean hog futures, but there are still concerns as that industry looks to perform in the year ahead. Joining us now to talk about those and the opportunities is Lori Steverner. She is the president-elect of the National Pork Producers Council Executive Board. And Lori, thank you for joining us here today.
7: Well, good morning, Mike, and I'm happy to be here.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit, Lori, about some of the challenges that you're seeing right now as pork producers. Can you give our audience who might be outside of pork production just a rundown of of what's happened in the industry here over the past couple months?
7: Sure. You know, there have been a few headwinds for us. Uh, You mentioned the economic aspect of it, and uh, while prices have rallied in the markets, we certainly are seeing higher input costs, and that's really led to the the negative margins that our, our producers have faced. So Hoping that uh, input costs can come down over the next few months and and those market prices stay up and we can continue to or start to receive a little more profitability in our markets. Uh, The other challenge that's been in the news is just Prop 12 and that decision uh, against the U.S. pork industry. Uh, Certainly disappointed that the overreach in in California with that Prop 12 and the way it's going to affect our farmers, but really just focused short term on a, a smooth transition. Prop 12 goes into effect July 1st, and we want to make sure there's pork on the shelves in the that state.
0: Absolutely, Lori. Proposition 12, of course, under much discussion at the World Pork Expo here last week in Des Moines. Can you talk to us a little bit about how the industry is planning to move forward? Are you hearing producers look at constructing additional sow housing? Are those conversations underway, or are we holding tight to see what shakes out from the legal front? Well,
7: I would say there's things happening on multiple fronts and certainly there are producers that have made changes in anticipation of prop 12 and i suspect there will be those that will make changes now you know as i mentioned we want to make sure that there's a smooth transition uh we want to see pork on the shelves come july 1st we don't want that pulled off you know 13 percent of our pork is consumed in california that's a huge market force there's a lot of individuals that really appreciate the low cost economical protein that pork is and so working very hard to make sure that they continue to have access to pork.
0: It is going to be interesting, Lori, to watch that California market develop here. Does the industry expect that it's going to take some time before things start flowing smoothly into and out of California?
7: I think that's one thing that that the industry is watching. Uh, You know, it may take some time for things to happen smoothly. Uh, And I know that there's just a lot of work uh, going on behind the scenes. I think uh, producers certainly have a lot in front of them, and many of them are just, you know, very resilient and and looking at just moving forward and and taking care of the, the daily business of their farms
0: absolutely you've got to keep those hogs alive got to keep them healthy Lori proposition 12 one of the policies right now that the the pork industry is working on of course the National Pork Producers Council you keep track of the other issues that impact growers here across the country and from a domestic standpoint are there any other policies that you're you're keeping an extra close eye on this summer
7: well one big thing in front of us is the farm bill Uh, this is a farm bill year uh, and so looking to have that passed hopefully yet this year, and I know they're working hard on it. Uh, We have just a couple of priorities within the Farm Bill that we're asking for. Uh, You know, animal disease prevention and preparedness is key, and so one of the aspects is what we call a three-legged stool, and that's really making sure that, number one, uh, our vaccine bank continues to be stocked and, and ready for any type of foreign animal disease that, that may occur. Uh, we also want continued support for our National Animal Lab Network. You know, that network uh, works very closely on disease monitoring, and certainly if there is some type of a large-scale animal disease outbreak that occurred, uh, we want them to be able to handle that capacity. And also just uh, making sure that uh, there's prevention and, and preparedness programs within Our veterinary and colleges and and stockpiles and and ready for for whatever might come our way so that's that's a focus i would say also uh, you know looking a little more internationally we want uh continued funding for the market access program that's the map program and also the foreign market development program those are two programs that are administered by uh, usda's uh, fas service and uh, they're designed to build out uh, the commercial export market. So while NPPC doesn't manage those programs, typically USMEF or National Pork Board do, that type of funding really helps develop those international markets and, and pre- provides great opportunity for U.S. pork then.
0: It does, Laurie, and I know you've been involved in the hog industry for quite some time. Have you had any experience working with overseas pork buyers and, and teaching them about the American hog industry?
7: Well, I actually had the opportunity to be in Mexico City about a month ago as part of the trade committee for NPPC, so we had a chance to to visit with some producers over there, I also had a chance to visit with uh, a couple of individuals that own a a company that uh, works with processed pork and selling it into Mexico there, and they commented on how the high quality of, of U.S. pork is and, and the opportunity for growth there. So really, as NPPC, our, market, our, our, our role is to open up those international markets and, and get that trade going. And then once those markets are open up, uh, other organizations like National Pork Board or USMEF really go in-country and, and then develop them further.
0: It's all about introducing those consumers to, to the the great protein that is U.S. pork and then, you know, letting them choose from there. Lori, while we're thinking about consumers and sort of their uh, their habits with regard to pork, I know NPPC keeps track of what, what consumers domestically are thinking. And what are some of the trends that you guys are watching that the hog industry perhaps could uh, take hold of?
7: Well, actually, you know, probably a little bit more of that falls into the pork board's wheelhouse. But I would say... You know, when we are looking at consumer trends, I mean, we know that uh, that there's definitely an interest in having uh, a low-cost, economic, affordable, wholesome protein. Uh, we hear a lot about concern with uh, food availability, food scarcity, and so uh, want to make sure that when we're looking at any public policy that has to do with food programs, that the pork is definitely part of that because it's, uh, it does fit well, whether it's school lunches or food shelves, food banks, things like that. So, wanting to make sure that food is definitely part of the consideration because of, of its affordability and, and wholesomeness.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's highlighted, especially now when you visit the meat case at the grocery store, folks, take a good hard look at pork. There are some great options out there at a great value right now in the markets. And let's keep demand running. Lori, if we can, I'd like to, to look back at international trade. Of course, that has been an incredible driver of profitability in the pork industry over the past five years. As you look out to the future, as NPPC looks out, is there still that, uh, that same opportunity for pork producers around the world?
7: You know, there's great opportunity for us, and just to give you an idea, I mean, last year in 22, we exported $7.6 billion worth of pork. That added about $61 head in value, and about 25% of our pork products are exported, and a lot of those are products that, that we don't eat here in the U.S., so great opportunity to add value to that carcass by, by shipping pork products to other parts of the world. One area, one priority that we're focused on is the Indo Pacific economic framework. That's a long word. The short word is IPEF. Uh the fourteen countries that make up IPEF have sixty percent of the world's population. So sixty percent of the world population and, and we were fortunate enough to ship thirty percent of our pork there to those countries. So there's a lot of opportunity there. Uh we just need to make sure that the negotiations continue and that uh those tariff and non-tariff restrictions that are in place right now are, are addressed and really removed so that we can take advantage of those opportunities.
0: Absolutely. Let's open the door to more trade with our allies, including the folks there in the Indo-Pacific Rim. It is fascinating to watch that region develop. Lori, of course, NPPC keeps track of these issues. You issue updates for interested pork producers. For listeners who, who might be inclined to learn more about pork production, where would you recommend they visit to uh, to learn more?
7: You know, I would just recommend that they go to our website, uh, nppc.org. There's a lot of information there on the organization. There's information by topic. So if there's a particular topic or or issue that you're interested in, that's a great place to go.
0: Check that out, folks. Always keep up to speed with what's happening at the National Pork Producers Council. We've been talking today with Lori Stevener. She is serving as the president-elect of the NPPC Executive Board. And Lori, thank you so much for joining us today.
7: Thank you, Mike.
0: Folks, stick around. We'll talk actually in our next segment about that Indo-Pacific Economic Framework with our friend John the geopolitical strategist. So leave it here. More AOA coming up in just a moment. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away, more AOA coming right up. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn
5: more. Why do you listen?
7: I like to hear about the weather and the stocks and the animal prices. It's good to know because I have a lot of customers that come in the store, and that's what they ask.
4: I want to stay informed. I want to know what's going on in my town. I also want to be entertained, whether it's sports or music or, you know, an update on the weather. I just want to stay informed while I'm on the go.
5: Why do you listen? Go to whyilisten.com, tell us why you listen, and you have a chance to win $500. Visit whyilisten.com today.
8: You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, the rally in the grain market continuing on Friday with sharp gains in grains led by the soy complex once again as we're seeing beans, bean meal up around $15 a ton, bean oil up over 100 points here, really leading the charge. Wheat also sharply higher, corn also up double digits. It is a risk on day on this Friday across the trade. In the case of corn and beans, we're watching the weather forecast as the latest model showing rain in the forecast, but mainly in the week two outlook. The Bermuda high continues to be displaced in the northeastern Atlantic, which keeps it out of position to transport moisture up into the Midwest. Forecasters continue to think that things will shift around here as we're starting to get into this El Nino pattern, but it isn't happening quite yet. Now, we do have chances for scattered showers and thunderstorms across parts of the western Corn Belt and Plains here as we work through today and through the weekend, but crops are hurting in pockets that are the driest and or where soils are light with little water holding capacity. Parts of Iowa, Indiana, and Illinois are really struggling as we work through and into the three-day holiday weekend. That is giving us this sharp rally here in the grains. Continuing, we broke it through some key resistance levels. Overhead And left a few gaps on the chart, especially in December corn, so that's something to keep our eyes on. Now over in the livestock trade, it's a fairly mixed bag there. Hogs showing some triple-digit strength led by front month July, holding about a premium to the cash index right now, while cattle futures are mixed, doing their best to hold in there, especially feeders, with corn rallying sharply. Crude oil up just a little over $70 a barrel. This is AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting.
0: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, AOA continues today, and if the last three years have shown us in agriculture anything, it's that we are more globally connected than we have ever been before. And we see those impacts on our markets, which is why every now and again, I like to check in with our geopolitical globetrotting friend, Mr. John Hulsman. He is a geopolitical strategist. He's an author. He's the host of the Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast. He's talking to us today from Milan, Italy. And John, thanks for making the time.
4: Sure thing, Mike. Always good to be here.
0: I want to pick your brain first and foremost about the explosion that happened in, uh, on the Russian-Ukraine border last week in the Karkova Dam. We've seen the grain markets kind of push past it, John, but from your perspective, what does that tell you about the Russian-Ukraine war?
4: Well, I mean, this is, this is old Soviet military doctrine. Uh, they did this in World War II to slow down the Nazis. And for the Russians, anything's fair game as long as they can slow down the offensive, which they are doing, by the way. The big story nobody's reporting on is this vaunted Ukrainian offensive. As we said, Mike, we're going to be right. I said this in January. We're going to be right back where we started uh, later on in the year, tragically, after a lot of loss of life. The Russian offensive made only minimal tactical gains. The Ukrainian offensive is only going to make minimal tactical gains. And we'll be right back where we started come October.
0: John, back when all of this got underway, you were one of the few voices saying this was going to be a drawn-out conflict, and that's wow. indeed wow. what it's turned into. How's the will of Europe in holding the line, so to speak? What's what's the popular conception in Europe of this war?
4: Well, I mean, this is it, is that if there is a stalemate, then outside, like World War I, then outside forces are what matter, and the two outside forces that matter are the amount of wherewithal the Soviet people or the Russian people have to endure suffering versus the interest of the Western allies in continuing to write Ukraine a blank check. Um, Frankly, the Europeans are secondary, I think, to concerns in America and the the Republican party, of which I am a member. Uh, There are an awful lot of people in the party, and in fact, now plurality, who say, why are we writing a blank check to the most corrupt country in the world? We haven't even audited where the money goes. And why are we giving $110 billion to a second order priority when we have first order priorities at home, like the fentanyl crisis, like our schools, like our infrastructure and overseas crises, like with Taiwan. And so I would really worry more about American war fatigue. We're after all keeping the lights on in Ukraine more than European fatigue among the European population there's an awful lot of fatigue if you look at public opinion polling in Germany, in France, and in Italy, less fatigue in the east of Europe, where they're much more for the let's stay on to Moscow, but there are divisions forming there too. But really, the domino that's more likely to fall is is America, which is the more impo- important domino for Ukraine.
0: All right. Any thoughts? Is this you mentioned we're going to be right back to where we started, John? Does this drag on for the foreseeable future?
4: yes it does and and i mean the the first call our risk firm made in january this year we always make our calls out on the internet unlike some of our competitors so you can actually judge how good we are and the call at the time when almost nobody agreed with us is this is going to be a very long drawn out war it really won't come to an end until these outside forces put pressure on either side and at the moment both sides still have a theory of victory Only the Chinese really have leverage over the Russians to do that. And only the Americans really have leverage on uh, the Ukrainians. And until you see moves to move them together, this is going to go on for a long, long time.
0: All right. We'll watch continued action there in Eastern Europe. John, you highlighted, I think, the next risk that at least agriculture is concerned about, which is the flashpoint between China and Taiwan. Fill us in a little bit. What's been developing with tensions in that part of the world?
4: Well, the good news is the bad news. I mean, the Americans, I mean, the Chinese, as we've said, have made a lot of mistakes. They've scared the horses. And in bullying India, Australia, Japan, South Korea, and their own people along with Taiwan all at once, they've actually led to the creation of an anti-Chinese coalition through the quadrilateral initiative of the U.S., Japan, Australia, and India, all banding together. This is good news. The Philippines ...are now on side, that Ferdinand Marcos Jr., Bong, Bong as he's known, has now resided with the United States, whereas Duterte, the old president, had been tilting toward China, so the Americans now have some new bases in the northernmost part of the country, which could resupply Taiwan, that's a major strategic win for the United States... Japan is doubling its defense spending. This is a serious country with the third largest economy in the world. Agreeing to double defense spending is a big deal. So things look better uh, in a deterrence point of view. But this just puts more pressure, as we said, in the short run on the Chinese to either move it or lose it. That The number of years they have to actually get anything done in Taiwan has probably shrunk to around five. And so the good news is that we can weather the immediate future. There's only upside for the grain market, for commodities, for the United States in the most important region in the world that's growing at the greatest rate, but we've got to get through the next five or so years.
0: All right, John, let's let's put our our rose colored glasses on. We get through the next five years. Xi Jinping is kept in mainland China. They don't make any moves on Taiwan. In the interim, we're developing this economic framework in that region, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. We just heard from our friends, the National Pork Producers Council. They're excited to see the demand potential growth in India. You just recently did a deep dive on your podcast on the growth for India. And I'm curious, are we being misled or is the growth potential real in that country?
4: Oh, it's absolutely real. When I run out of positive things to say and it gets too gloomy at any meaning, I just say India, India, India. Uh, For the last 15 years, we've been really hot on India growing. And now the numbers back that up that, look, India is the only great power in the world with demographic catch-up growth. And this is what propelled China to its great success, meaning if the Indians don't screw things up too badly, if the BJP government is moderately more competent than the old Congress government, which it is, Moderately more pro business, which it is, moderately open to change it. It's spending a ton of money on infrastructure. Obviously, they have a long way to go, but they're getting there. It will grow at minimum at 6%, and at the max, if they're actually good at this, at around 10% for the next 20 years. This is the biggest news story. As Goldman Sachs said, by 2050, the three largest economies in the world are all in the Indo Pacific the United States, China, and India. India's English speaking, demographic, Democratic, wants to be more pro-American, is fearful of China as we are, this is the no-brainer of no-brainers. India is the future.
0: The question, John, as always, is how does that future get here? And of course, in in my professional career, it has almost all been during the great Chinese boom. We saw the commodity price surge 2001 through 2014, whatever endpoint you want to put on that China growth. Do you expect India to develop in that form or culturally, are they just different that you expect it to look substantially different?
4: It'll look different. I mean, there'll still be a boom in commodities. There's no doubt they're energy-thirsty, they're commodity-thirsty. There'll still be a boom I'm, i don't think they'll grow at the nine per year that the chinese had under Deng Xiaoping, who was actually exceptionally good at this in china but i do think six to eight percent for 20 years which is the highest growth by far of any great power in the world i mean that's what we're looking at this year they're growing at over six next year towards seven there doesn't seem to be anything except if war were to break out to really stop this and so there will be slightly different growth they they're interested in more investment they're interested in everything from commodities to military means to doing more with the United States. Geostrategically, they want to tilt toward us in the region. Uh, it'll look slightly different, be perhaps slightly slower. Their bureaucracy is still a nightmare. Every time I try to get an Indian visa, I try not to swear at people. Uh, but but the, the reality is that this is a win-win-win, and it's very exciting that it's on the table and again all the risk but also all the economic reward in the region in the region and India is the jewel in the crown of the Indo-Pacific for us.
0: Now John when China was doing their massive expansion they were financing that largely as I understand it through government debt. That was how mm-hmm. they were promoting this massive infrastructure growth. For a country like India do they have the same access to the global debt markets? Could they command that sort of financial capital to push this thing ahead?
4: They could. They haven't yet. I mean, India's always had a more protectionist, statist view. I mean, the the Congress Party that ran it for the greater part of of, of its lifetime of India, the Nehru-Gandhi dynasty, has always been social democratic and so center-left and involves the state and is more protectionist. The BJP, which is the Hindu Nationalist Party of Prime Minister Narendra Modi, um, is more open than that, but they're still more protectionist than we are. So again, I think 9 to 10% because of this. It's probably off the table. But frankly, Mike, if they grow at six or seven for 20 years, we're quibbling. Um, And and there's no there's no reason they can't do that. And debt markets are eager to do more with India. Investment portfolios are looking at non-Chinese denominated businesses within the region that really favor India. Um, it's, It's coming on board and coming fast. And the other thing they have is political stability. Modi's won two elections outright in India, which is a rarity, and he's on course to win a third term uh, with an outright majority next year. So they have political stability. They speak English. They have rule of law. They have the same systems parliamentary from the British that we understand. They want to do more with us. Walking through the door is what we need to do here.
0: All right. Glad to hear that, at least on the ag side, they are making that effort to walk through that door. John, before we let you go, I know it is still very, very early in the 2024 American Presidential Contest, but I know you keep an eye on it very closely. Any insights for us here as this thing heads into summer?
4: Well, two things, and they're contradictory to say. As Fitzgerald said, it's a market genius if you're going to have two contradictory ideas at one time, but we have to. One— it's much more likely more and more that Donald Trump and Joe Biden are the two nominees of of the two parties. And the second thing is that 80% of the country, according to Gallup polling, don't want this. Uh, A majority of Democrats now don't want Joe Biden to run for reelection. A plurality of Republicans wish that Donald Trump would go away Uh, Whoever can rally their base best is going to win, but there's also the potential for a third-party candidate here just because so many people are disenfranchised from both of them. So it looks like a rematch, but nobody has any enthusiasm. But there is actual room for a third-party candidate to do rather well, but it's very early in the day
0: it is very early indeed that is going to be the next major topic of conversation here in the news we've been speaking with john halsman geopolitical strategist author host of the around the world in 20 minutes podcast john thanks for joining us on aoa today
4: always fun mike
0: folks stick around we'll dive into these grain markets with mike zuzalo of global commodity research and analytics here when aoa returns Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up.
10: What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death.
0: This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with John Griffith, Executive Vice President of Ag Business with CHS on his recent congressional testimony about agricultural trade. John, why is this important to U.S. farmers and CHS owners?
11: Well, CHS as the nation's largest farmer-owned cooperative. We feel it's our obligation to have a voice on behalf of agriculture and on behalf of our owners.
0: You advocated for additional funds for market access and market development programs, why?
11: Yeah, these programs are crucially important to the development of new markets and new customers, and it's work that the industry cannot do alone. Sometimes it takes up to 10 years to develop markets or develop customer relationships, and the MAP funds and the foreign market development programs assist in that regard with the funding to allow for industry as as well as nonprofits and associations to do some of that work, and it's been proven to work very effectively over the long term.
0: Are we seeing success then, I guess, is my next question with these programs, John?
11: Yeah, we absolutely are, and, and one of the examples I used in the, in the testimony in, in D.C. was a, a specific example around Vietnam, with about that 10-year time horizon where the customer engaged and the MAP funds were deployed to help with the education and development for that market in Vietnam, and it subsequently resulted in constant growth in U.S. agricultural products going to Vietnam.
0: John, what message did you want policymakers to take away from your comments during the hearing? The
11: focus of this, this hearing was on international trade. That export business and the continually developing that business helps bring market access and consistency and competitiveness of pricing to our nation's farmers.
0: That's John Griffith, Executive Vice President of Ag Business at CHS. John, thanks for joining us this week. Thank you, Mike. And thank you for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com.
4: Corn is native to the American continents and was unknown to the rest of humanity until Columbus arrived in the New World in the 15th century. It took less than 100 years after Columbus's discovery for corn to be introduced to farmers in Asia, Africa, Europe, and the Pacific Islands. After wheat and rice, corn is the third most cultivated crop in the world. The four nations that purchase the most corn from the United States are Mexico and Colombia, who use it as a food ingredient, and Japan and South Korea, who buy it mainly for animal feed.
0: This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.
1: Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson.
0: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. If you have been listening to AOA, or I suppose any, Farm News show over the past few days, you have no doubt been hearing about this rally that is taking place in the grain markets, corn, soybeans, and wheat all substantially higher. This weather market remains a concern for traders. Joining us now to talk through these levels and these valuations is Mike Zuzalo, founder of Global Commodity Research and Analysis. And Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be on with you, Mike, and a happy weather market rally Friday. Happy Weather Market Friday indeed. Folks, just in case you're listening on a different day, we are talking Friday, June 16th. And Mike, we've got soybeans up nearly 40 cents. November up 46 cents right now. We've got December corn up 20 cents. Are we just unloading the grain bins at these levels or do you want to let things run? I, I want to let things run here because it's not just about
12: US weather. And if you would have, would have asked me that question four or five days ago, I would have said, yeah, you got to sell into this hard. Now, having said that, I do think that we do want to really be primed for the pump, no matter how bullish we are next week to start moving. And that's what I'll plan to do with clients and subscribers. But the big thing that was was making me worry about the sustainability of this market was the lack of the wheat leadership and the lack of the ability of the wheat to join the party. And that's been the hallmark of this market really for six months plus, Mike. And we finally got that this week. And I think we're finally starting to realize that there are two big weather markets in the Northern Hemisphere, not just here in the United States. And so I would put it along the scale that two to three weeks from now, Combining these two weather markets could, in essence, take more stocks away and supplies away from us than even 2012 did. And so I want to give this market a chance as long as I see that wheat leading the, the show. And right now it's been doing that.
0: Mike, this wheat market has not had a bullish story for some time. We saw that dam explosion last Monday and wheat fell apart. Now it's starting to move. Talk to us if you can about the severity of this European drought. We've touched on the drought in Spain from several weeks ago, but this long-running drought has been under my radar. What's the impact expected to be so far?
12: Well, you know, I owe everything in my analysis to the people I work with other than, you know, just the the analysis I do from a theoretical standpoint. But I've had a client in Sweden tell me for the last three weeks that they've got a weather market brewing up and down the Baltics and, and, and not just in Europe. And he said to me last week, um, he said, Mike, I've got the worst weather market since 2018, and that's year 2012 to us. And when he said that, it just put everything into perspective. And then when I saw Thursday, the soft red wheat go up 5%, led the corn and beans, biggest percentage gain on the day for both or for all three, doing it again on Friday here up another 5% with no beans up, as you say, 3.6, 3.7%. It made me realize that what this market's been missing, Mike, is the fear that that we're it's been it's been consumed with the fear I should say of more imports of wheat coming into the United States, and that's coming from Europe. But if we have wheat weather and corn weather problems in Europe as bad as what we're having in the United States, we can start to take that off the table. And I think that's exactly what the funds are doing right now, taking the idea that we're going to have the USDA's national corn and bean yield off the table, and at the same time taking off the table the likelihood of any more wheat imports coming into the U.S. from Europe.
0: Mike, you said right there, you believe this is the funds taking that off. And that was going to be my next question. We have seen the managed money just is shooing wheat for the last four months. They've been looking for any reason to sell it. But now you think they are coming back in.
12: Yeah, I really do think that. And I think we'll get an idea of that. We'll get a glimpse of that here on the Commitment of Traders report before this three day holiday. And, you know, here we are again into the emotional sentiment, summer uh, weather type mindset going into a three day holiday and you tend to culminate some emotion. But here again, Mike, I think with what we're seeing in the conditions, uh, the, the corn the corn conditions in particular, three states under 50% good to excellent, 0% last year at this time. I think the funds are seeing that, and they're also seeing that three states are on the bubble to go below 50 on Tuesday afternoon, and that'd be Indiana, Ohio, and Kansas. So when you've got six major states out of 12 that I follow I think that's where the funds are right now. They're seeing the supply side. They'll come back to reckon with the demand side probably around the next WASDE report.
0: You know, we're thinking about the supply side, Mike. We did not see any adjustments as expected from the USDA on this June WASDE, but I would imagine the hedge funds are running a little different algorithm. What do you think they're trading for a final yield number right now?
12: I've been doing some research on that, Mike, and and what I've come up with so far. And it's not hard, fast, but I think they're trading so much more weather and weather model updates. Um, I I see that more and more in in the price action and weather model changes. But, you know, and and I got to say, the funds change things very quickly. And and you'll probably say Zuzlo is so bullish today. It it was crazy. But I also realized there's a gap below in the electronic discord chart at 533 from the beginning of this week It is a hedger's market, and I think I'm just going to wait a few days, but I do want to hedge because it's weather and it's supply right now.
0: Mike, now that we've got the wheat rally developing, you've got that ceiling taken off the fund's interest here in the grain markets. What I know when we're heading into a weather market, the the top could be anywhere. But from an analytical perspective, what are the next levels of resistance you'd expect this market to encounter?
12: Yeah, I mean, there's pretty stiff resistance at six in these corn and then six and a quarter, 635. That's always been a tough number to get above. It's kind of like 1040 beans. Uh, once you get above 1040 beans in November futures or lead month futures, you can really move the market typically. I think 625, 635 area is going to be pretty stiff resistance, Mike. I think to that point, though, the the wheat corn spread, this SRW corn spread, is back almost to 60 cents, we're back to March levels, we're within about a dime 15 cents of taking soft red wheat off the table as a feed grain. That probably does as much for us in terms of not losing as much demand and maybe opening up the upside. So it's still about wheat in my opinion at this point.
0: All right. Continue watching that week. Mike, while we've got you on the line here, of course, we've got a 20 cent rally happening in the corn market. We've got August feed, feeders up on the day. That's got to be a sign of, of continued movement uh, in a bullish direction on feeders.
12: Yes. And that's your funds. And then that's your, that's your risk on rally, thanks to the the, the Chinese coming in and, and loosening their monetary policy. That's got to be woven into this story, too, because wheat's your macro leader for the grains. And that's really shown up with the dollar crude and wheat and copper this week, too,
0: Mike. So much to think about on that global perspective. Mike Zuzalo of Global Commodity Research and Analytics, thanks so much for joining us on the show today.
12: Thanks for having me, Mike.
0: Folks, tune in next time to AOA. It's Juneteenth, so we will be playing a best-of edition, but we'll be back Tuesday with weather and markets and more AOA. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. On the first Wednesday of every month, our friends from the National Corn Growers Association join us here on AOA for a segment we call The Monthly Grind. This month, we talked with Wendy Osborne of Ohio Corn, and Ralph Lentz of the U.S. Meat Export Federation Board. Wendy, this partnership between grains and livestock is an important one, isn't it?
3: Yeah, so corn growers recognize that of the world's population lives outside the U.S. So trade is just so important to the U.S. farmer and American corn farmers want to help increase demand for U.S. beef and pork around the world. That in 2021, beef and pork exports, this is just the exports, Mike, they accounted for 537 million bushels of corn usage, which equates to about $2.94 billion.
4: Ralph, that's a
0: huge figure. What areas around the world look hot for meat exports in 2023?
4: Anything in Asia, Korea, Japan, China, they they all love our corn fed beef that's not duplicated anywhere in the world
0: pork products are moving well
4: they've got a taste of our red meat and they don't like fish anymore they're moving more than red meats
0: tune in wednesday july 5th for the next monthly grind on aoa
3: you are not your diagnosis
0: a medical chart is not your identity
10: and vision loss does not define you your drive shows who you are and you are not alone because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage.
6: An advocate for hope.
10: You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding.
6: We're fighting macular degeneration.
3: Retinitis pigmentosa.
10: Usher syndrome. And the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases.
12: We fund.
3: We fight.
10: We, we win. win. We, 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 we are, are the, the foundation, foundation fighting, blindness. fighting blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness.
6: Join the fight at
4: fightingblindness.org.